All right, are you uh ready to do this thing? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, do you have your Diet Coke? Yes, I have here the ceremonial Diet Coke. Let me just uh, open it up right here. <sighs> Excellent. Let's get started. December 24th, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. From here on out, we podcast without a script. Greetings from Cyberland. Welcome to Greetings from Cyberland, a lovingly critical revisit of Rent, the hit musical and film. I'm Alice White. And I'm Buddy Duquesne. And welcome to the first episode of our brand new show. Yeah, Greetings from Cyberland, a lovingly critical revisit of Rent. Uh, Rent the show, which means a lot to both you and I. Yes, it's an it's an old favorite um, and a a massively influential and controversial show and something that uh, we felt was um, was worth revisiting uh, maybe in a in a new context. Um, so what we, yeah, what we hope to accomplish over the next 12 episodes is we want to revisit this old favorite of ours. We want to talk about the year 2020, how it affected our outlook on not just the show, but the topics addressed in the show, and uh, think about how Rent is or is not relevant to this day. Yeah, I I think that there is still so much left to be said about Rent, and Alice, you are actually the driving force behind this podcast. What you have <laughs> laid out for us for this dozen or maybe Baker's dozen of episodes uh, is an impressive amount of just stuff, material to talk about. Um, and it's going to be a, a really incredible journey uh, because I feel like Rent is more than we give it credit for. At the same time, I feel like Rent is a very imperfect show. Yeah, the the show famously is a little unfinished and neat and probably could use some polishing and also famously we'll never get that polishing or finishing and we'll discuss more about what that means for the show and how it got to be um how it got to be like that um and i think that that kind of the flaws in the show and the kind of unfinished nature of the thing uh gives the show kind of a almost a mythological quality within the musical theater world and uh and and has direct effects on on the storytelling and the things that it chooses to to address and it's uh it's a really important show um that is both somehow over and underrated and is deeply <laughs> deeply uh, controversial and uh and thoroughly discussed uh over the years it it has been out for so long that uh Maybe some of these topics have been covered more thoroughly by other people, but I have a lot of thoughts and a lot of opinions and a lot of things to say about this show. And uh, that's why I wanted to I, I wanted to bring you along for this journey. I want to to revisit this show and uh, and think about, you know, how it aged and uh, and what it can teach us even now to this day. Yeah, I mean, I think Rent is uh, Rent is one of those foundational works for people of a certain age 
And when I say people of a certain age, I do mean us, Alice. We are uh, ancient beings. Um, and one of the things that I hear over and over again when I talk to, you know, other ancient beings of, of our age is that everybody had a rent phase. Um, that rent is just one of those shows that if you were a theater kid in any capacity, you went through a phase of weeks or months or years where rent was your world. Yeah, it's true. Uh, yeah. It's true. Every every kid uh, who was in musical theater or show choir or just uh, drama or had any kind of connection to that world at all, um, you if you knew all of the lyrics to La Vie Boheme, it was like a rite of passage to be able to participate in the conversation. It was... Um, if you, you know, had characters that you identified with or you picked up articles of clothing that reminded you of costume pieces from the show. This was like our generation's big um, like theater signifier of do you belong in this community or not? And that is a, 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 a difficult conversation to have and the kind of like gatekeeping that comes with um, – you know, oh, you have to be this kind of super fan in order to even play is something that I think every fandom goes through. Um, but yeah, for us, uh, as ancient as ancient beings, uh, for us, it was it was rent. That was the this was the piece of art that influenced us um, quite a lot through our uh, middle school and high school years. Yeah. Uh, well, OK, so everybody has had a rent phase, but. Alice, you and I have been so close for so long that here's something that's true about me. Uh, <laughs> I never had a rent phase because your rent phase was so powerful that it <laughs> dragged me through those years. So I ended up um, absorbing rent uh, kind of kind of via osmosis. Uh, I ended up seeing Rent multiple times, both the movie and the, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but the theatrical release of the on-Broadway cast. Um, and, <laughs> like, for me, Rent is a very important show that I never loved like you did. Um <laughs> Which is which is fascinating because here I am now uh, being dragged once more into rent. <laughs> I will drag you kicking and screaming into the things that I am into. And <laughs> I have been doing so for the last 15 years of our lives. That's and, uh, true. Um, and I'm really glad that you're here to uh, to talk about rent with me uh, on this on this podcast. I'm really excited for this show. I think we have a, a lot to say and a lot of really important conversations to be had um, because this show is um it's a it's a big one it, yeah. it covers a lot of really important topics and uh and we'll and we'll talk about a lot of them and in in great detail but before we really get started into uh into the show uh i want to talk to you uh i want to ask you since you're hosting this show with me i want to ask right. you uh tell me about maybe your your favorite and maybe least favorite things about the musical rent well, first, I got to say, I, I joke, I kid, you're not dragging me kicking and screaming through <laughs> through Rent again. I'm actually really glad that we're here to talk about it because in preparation for this podcast, I went ahead and watched the original Broadway cast recording that exists. Um, or it's not the original Broadway cast. It's the closing Broadway cast that, yes. that we have a recording of. Um, and I was impressed with how much this show left me thinking about, which is... 
amazing. It's a musical can do this, and many musicals do leave you just wanting more, wanting to talk about it. Uh, they leave you with questions, but a lot of musicals are. Uh, frivolous, fun, happy, and that's good. There's definitely room for that, right? Um, Rent feels like it's about something, and it also feels like the way that it goes about being about something is pretty special, uh, and I do like it. Uh, it's never been my favorite musical, and I've never really, like, outright loved it, but I do like this show. I like the characters, and I, I like the music. Um... I think maybe its biggest strength is that it's telling a lot of stories at once and that it's not about one character uh, going through something and learning something. It's about a bunch of characters going through something and maybe they don't learn something. Uh, it's a, about a lot of struggling people uh, who are struggling to find out who they are, where they fit in in the world, and how they're even going to survive. Um, and some of them don't succeed in that. Uh, I think my favorite character, by the way, in the, in the whole cast is Tom Collins. Uh, <laughs> I, I think he's brilliant. Uh, like, obviously, it's it's right there in the text of the play. Like, he's a, a former MIT professor. Now he's at NYU. And for some reason, he can't... He, he doesn't have any money because, of course not. He's an academic. He's not in <laughs> it for the money, right? But, like, also, he's, he's near destitute and he's a computer science philosophy guy, and nobody's paying for that. Um, and he, you know, he's able to magically make money appear at the end of the show, and that's really cool. But like, also that kind of character, like bona fide philosophical genius, can so often stray into like cold calculating. You know, does things with computers, uh, <laughs> and doesn't get people, but. That's not Tom Collins at all. He is the warmest, most genuine person. He feels all of his emotions so fully. He falls in love in minutes, and he knows it's right, and he stands by it. And I don't know. I think Tom is a really important character because he's hopeful, and he's alive, and, and very just vibrantly alive. Uh, but he's a realistic person, too. Uh, and and he's willing to walk that line and stand by his beliefs and his convictions while also doing what he needs to. Uh, I just think he's a cool guy. Uh, I, again, I really do like the music in this show. I think rock operas are cool. Uh, I think that the band is one of the highlights of the show. Oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, just that the band is there and exists. Uh, and I've seen a lot of shows since uh, that have bands. Um, and it feels like, thanks, Rent. You you made that a thing. Um, <laughs> but, okay, let's... I've gushed a little. Uh, I do have my, my problems with Rent. Um, my struggles with Rent. And I think what keeps me away from Rent and, like, really enjoying it as one of the greats is that sometimes it feels way too overdone for itself. Like, it feels overdone within itself. Which is a shame because the play has a lot of genuine emotion and great character moments. But it feels like it's trying to be about everything. And it's trying to be like the play about the AIDS crisis. 
Uh, and it also feels like it's so self-important that it comes off as disingenuous sometimes. Uh, and that's a shame. Uh, and I also feel like Rent was so influential, like so influential, that everything is Rent. <laughs> everything that came after it is is in some way Rent. You know, be it kind of a uh, gestural set design that you know, with with a lot of uh, reused assets to represent different places, or be it, you know, the live band on stage with the actors, or be it just the nature of being a rock opera, like everything's a rock opera now, right? <laughs> um, and, and yeah, I, I, that's not fair to rent. Um, but because it's so foundational, it, it almost feels old fashioned, which is a funny thing to consider, right? Because rent's not that old. We joke about being ancient beings. <laughs> rent's, rent's not that old no. uh, and the popularity of rent is not that old either uh, but it sometimes feels just as old as what we might call like Broadway classics in fact I would consider rent a Broadway classic uh, and since it's since it has these pretenses of being so hyper modern it, it definitely clashes against that uh, and my final feeling on rent the thing that makes it really tough to talk about rent uh, to like Rent, to love Rent, is that I feel like Rent has been over for a really long time. Uh, and I don't mean like its show run. I mean like the conversation around, around Rent. Like people have talked about Rent and the prevailing definitive opinions on Rent are out there and they exist and that Rent has been passe, and maybe Rent was already passe by the time we were done with Rent as teenagers uh, and and having a, having that Rent phase, that Rent was kind of already over in terms of how important it was. Uh, and it's hard to jump back in because it feels done. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. Not just because so much time has passed since rent came out but because it almost feels like a time capsule um because the because one of my one of my favorite things about the show um is the aesthetic of of the show i love the repurposed scaffolding and the kind of uh the band on stage and the kind of um the energy around that um around the the staging and everything but it is really as you said it is it it dates itself almost exactly to 1996 and that um and that now that we are revisiting it in 2020 you know all these years later it it can feel like like oh well what else can be said about it it came out it came out so long ago and and stays and stays relevant to the mid nineties that how, what, how could we possibly continue speaking about it? Nothing, nothing that goes on in rent is relevant now. Like, you know, New York isn't a, you know, a, a wasteland of 
you know, uh, extremely poor artists anymore. Like the Lower East Side and Alphabet City are like some of the most expensive neighborhoods now. And, and it seems like their problems kind of only could exist in 1996. Um, but that's exactly like why we're here and like why we want to discuss why do, you know, why, why does rent feel passe now? Like, why does it, why does it feel like a time capsule when so many of the little things discussed in the show are still relevant to this day. And that's, um, that is going to tie to, I think one of my, one of my least favorite things about the show is that the important things that the show wants to discuss that are still relevant to this day, the really, truly important things don't get enough time spent with them. We don't spend enough time at life support. We don't get to know the, um, you know, the, the, the characters in the show that are dying. We don't get to know that homeless woman on the street who calls Mark out for being, you know, a self-absorbed artist. We don't, we don't get to spend enough time with these things that are, that feel so vibrant and real and important to talk about nowadays um, that it feels like Rent it, it almost ignores those things and then leaves them behind and doesn't consider them as important. And therefore, the show kind of feels like, like, almost like, not not only is it left behind, but it gave us, like, permission to leave it behind. Like, this show belongs in the 90s now. Um, and yeah, it's, and it's, it's it, the mid-90s looking at the early 90s or the very late 80s and yeah. saying, oh, we've moved past that. Things are better now than then. Things are still terrible, but things are, you know, we, we have coping mechanisms and things, you know, that, that help us. Right. We have a, a drug that we can take for for AIDS. We have, you know, we have treatments and stuff. And, and that's so unfair, right? That that even then it almost felt like it was a way to process and move past such a recent era, such a recent experience. Uh, that was absolutely still happening in all sorts of ways. Right. Um, that That is a, a gripe that I have with the show, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And yet, Rent is still relevant. In fact, I would say that, and, and here we go, Alice, big thesis statement for the whole show, but I, I think that Rent is more relevant than ever here at the end of the year 2020. Uh, and and I would like to uh, I would like to propose that here in Cyberland, uh, which is where we are now, <laughs> uh, that we that we open ourselves to rent both as time time capsule and a timeless tale that really does bring things up that are still worth talking about. It may be a product of a certain time and a certain space, uh, but that doesn't mean that it's not still telling a story that does matter and a story that reflects on our reality. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what we're here to do. So uh, do you want to jump in and, and kind of give a brief history of how Rent came to be the smash Broadway hit that it was? Uh, and, and why it was. Sure, yeah, this will be a, a very brief overview of the history of Rent. We have 
a lot more to cover in future episodes. Um, but just to start off, um, Rent had its first stage reading at the New York Theater Workshop in March of 1993. Um, that version, or at least the audio of that version, is available to listen to on YouTube uh, if you want to find it. It's as the, of this recording. As of this recording, the Rent 1994 New York Theater. It was the audio was laid down in 1994. Um, the New York Theater Workshop um, edition, where the show was a very different animal. Um, and Jonathan Larson, who is the the writer and composer of Rent, um, workshopped it and worked on it and changed it and moved things around um, consistently for years um, until the show was ready to open off-Broadway. It opened in an off-Broadway theater in on January 25th, 1996. Um very, very quickly became a huge success um, and an almost unheard of speed. It moved on to Broadway from the Off-Broadway Theater to the Broadway Nederlander Theater, uh, which was at the moment, at the time, under renovation. Um, and it opened on April 29th, 1996. So just four months later was suddenly on Broadway. That is almost unheard of. It is a, a rapid speed. Um, and it ran consistently uh, eight shows a week until September 7th, 2008. It ran for 12 years, 5,123 performances, which made it the 11th longest running Broadway show. Um, and, uh, and, and during its run, it grossed over $280 million and was nominated for 10 Tony Awards in 1996. It won four. Um, best musical, best book of a musical, best original score, and best performance by a featured actor in a musical, which was given to Wilson Germain Heredia, who played Angel. Um, and the show won the Pulitzer Prize for drama. Uh, and an absolute remarkable success of a show that once it finally hit Off-Broadway and then, and then Broadway had a trajectory of exponential proportions, <laughs> really just... Uh, hit the ground running and didn't stop for for 12 years and multiple national tours and a movie and and inspired millions of theater kids just like us. Yeah, let me see if I'm getting the math right here. It looks like it opens in January of 96 and is winning Tonys by the end of the same year. Yep. It was that, uh, uh, it opened within the deadline of the Tony Awards for 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 that year. No, it opened off Broadway in January and then opened in April <laughs> and then won Tonys. That's wild. It, that won, is... it won Tony Awards for the 1996 season. Wow. Um, I don't know when that ceremony was held in, in 96 or seven. But yeah, it, it, it opened within the 1996 season. Absolutely wild. Four massive Tony Awards. That's huge. And and I don't I can't remember a similar show other than perhaps Hamilton, which maybe had a slightly slower trajectory, but experienced similar success, would you say? Yeah. Uh Hamilton is a, a actually had a very similar trajectory, except that it was never in an off-Broadway theater. It went from workshop to it went from workshop to workshop to workshop to Broadway. It kind of was, was uh, Lin-Manuel kind of shopped it around for a while and made changes to it. And then suddenly there it was. Um, and yeah, it, it, you were right to make the comparisons. Those are, they are similarly massive hits. If you think kind of, of um, 
Broadway, like big Broadway shows of their generations. Um, it, you would Hamilton is the the current one, the current big hit. Um, before Hamilton, probably I'd say Wicked. Before Wicked was Rent. Like those are the there are there are other massive shows that come out between them. But as far as like generation defining, um, genre defying musicals, um, those are the, the that that would be that would be it. Yeah. And crossover hits, too, is what we're talking about. Right. Absolutely. Where, where it's it's dragging people into the theater and getting people interested in theater that normally wouldn't be. Uh, and and I feel like Rent doesn't get nearly enough credit for being as different as it was for its time. Sure. It was, uh, and, it was, and revitalizing the musical scene in many ways. Absolutely. It was a very different experience for the theater. It was very much was a workshop and off-Broadway show. It was very experimental and very strange and uh, included a lot of modern politics and a lot of um, criticisms of you know, uh, like political structures and and things that don't normally become big blockbuster hits. Um, And it transcended all of that. Um, And and part of that would be the um, the genius and the success of um, Mr. Jonathan Larson, the composer and writer of the show. Yeah. uh, Alice, you know a lot more about Larson's life, his inspiration and his tragic and unexpected death. Uh, so I'll let you take the lead on this one. Sure. Well, in the in the next episode, in episode two, we will be covering uh, Jonathan Larson extensively. Um, but just as a, a, a quick overview, um, Jonathan Larson was born in February 1960. Um, he's from White Plains, New York. Uh, he moved to Manhattan when he was a young man. And a lot of his uh, inspiration for the musical and for the experiences of the characters in the musical are based off of his real life experience living on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Um, he, his big influences for the show were not just his real life experiences, but he, the musical Rent is based off of a an opera, Puccini's uh, 1896 opera La Boheme. Um, <laughs> Jonathan Larson translated the thing and turned it into rent there's a lot of similarities um and it's been done before there are other stories that have been based off of lava web but rent is definitely the most famous uh jonathan larson's goal with making rent is from from the beginning he wanted to make a musical from the for the mtv generation he was coming of age um during you know, during the time where MTV was becoming a massive uh, influence on everybody and the culture was changing rapidly. And he really wanted to tap into the uh, the, the lives and experiences of the young people of the time. Um, unfortunately, Jonathan Larson passed away on January 25th, 1996, the very same night that the show opened off Broadway. Um uh, we'll cover this further, but after the um, after the final dress rehearsal the night before opening, he went home and was uh, found dead the next morning um, of an aneurysm that was caused by possibly caused by undiagnosed Marfan syndrome, um, and uh, it was sudden and unexpected and horrible. And he was such the 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 heart and soul of the show um, that his death kind of still to this day rings through 
the uh, rings through the show and influences a lot of people's uh, thoughts and opinions uh, about the show. The man was uh, was a very very talented composer and a very interesting and uh, interesting and very confident figure. And we'll we'll talk a lot about him next episode because he was um, he really was a, a visionary and he knew that he had something really special with Rent, um, and he was right. Yeah, I mean, clearly Rent had already started to turn heads and strike nerves, right? Like, clearly Rent was on its way to being something really special already. And I think that when you say it's unfinished and, you know, Larson's death kind of adds to that... Mystique sounds like the wrong word, but you know what I mean? Yeah, that absolutely. that idea that oh it is this last great work and it's not quite done. Uh there's something going on there with with kind of the mythology of rent, I think. Uh and like you said how it how it gets treated in productions as well. Um where it it feels like there's something being said by the composer, you know, something is being said here. Um it feels not like an obituary because I don't have a better word though that's what I'm going to say <laughs> it feels a bit like an obituary um, it almost feels like he wrote his own eulogy there it is that's the word I was looking for thank you yeah um, Yeah. it feels like he wrote his own eulogy and there is a feeling of well, there. there is an ever present specter of death within the show but there's also a feeling of kind of grappling with the fact that finality is on its way to everybody. Uh, it's just kind of a matter of when. Uh, and Alice, you and I were talking about the character of Mark, and we'll get more into this in the next episode, I'm sure, but as a cipher for Larson, right? Right. Yeah, it's... um. Uh, Larson always said that he based the character of Mark off of uh, several of his friends, but you can directly see influence from Jonathan Larson's life on the character of Mark. And, uh, and since Mark is our narrator and our kind of guide through the show, it's almost like Jonathan Larson himself is showing us uh, his own creation. Um, and, and that's why, despite all of the things I can say about the character of Mark, uh, it's <laughs> um, most of them not, very kind um it's why that that character is so special so important to so many people um is that the character of mark and mark presenting this show to us as we watch it kind of feels like jonathan larson's final gift to the world and he was quoted as saying even as late as the you know just a, a few hours before his death he had been heard over and over again saying that he knew he was writing the next big musical and that he 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 knew that what he was doing was special. And so when you when you think about it like that and you think about that attitude he had about the show uh, and about the characters and how much it it meant to him. Um, and then and then he you know, was taken from us. So unexpectedly, it feels like um like it's the show then is given kind of a legendary status and it helped kind of the mythos around the show grow and the story 
was shared to so many people and affected and touched so many people that the that the show became even more of a massive success than it already was. And and whether or not Jonathan Larson was psychic and knew that what he was what he was doing, um, that he would have touched so many lives and and changed so many people um, or whether he was just really, really, really confident. <laughs> we'll never know. <laughs> um, but it's, you know, it's. He he's such an interesting person, and I'm really um, looking forward to diving deeper into his life in the next episode. Yeah, uh, and speaking of the play's success, the musical did become a uh, major Hollywood motion picture, it sure uh, did. which is something that very few musicals get to boast about, um, especially in the year 2005. When musicals were very out of style. Um, so released on November 23rd, 2005 with a budget of 40 million, it raked in a whopping 31.6 million in the box office, Yikes. making it an official flop. Aww. Uh, but nice stats about it. It did inc- include many examples of the Broadway original cast, except for the characters of Mimi and Joanne. Right. Uh, Mimi and Joanne were recast. All the members of the original Broadway cast, except for Daffy Ribbon Vega, uh, who played Mimi on the in the original Broadway cast. She was pregnant at the time of filming, and so did not return for her role. Um, and the character of Joanne was played by Freddie Walker, um, who, according to a couple of different sources, either Freddie Walker felt as though she were too old to play joanne anymore or the producers felt that she was too old to play her role um it is impossible to tell which one of those things are true so they were replaced uh respectively by rosario dawson and tracy toms who then went on to play the character of joanne in the uh closing cast of the show in 2008 yeah, and I think she did a pretty great job. She's really good. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the film was not well received by critics, especially uh, not just audiences who simply did not go and see it. Um, but Rotten Tomatoes currently gives the film a score of 46 percent. Yikes. Uh, based on reviews from 172 critics with an average rating of 5.9 out of 10. Yikes. That uh, is not great. I gotta say that I do agree uh, with Rotten Tomatoes. It is a solid below six out of ten, um, <laughs> and that's that's because I don't feel that a lot of the uh, spirit of the play, the kinetic energy of the play, uh, translates to the screen uh, under the direction of the film. Uh, maybe maybe a another director could have done so. Yes, um, maybe. But uh, I don't think I was going to Christopher... say maybe a more talented, but I, I don't know. Christopher um, Columbus is a, a fine director. He's a fine um, director, a, a, a true journeyman, like uh, who has done many great films, but I don't uh, think rent was meant for him. <laughs> no. Uh, so maybe a different director could have done it. Uh, maybe casting decisions could have been improved. I feel like, uh, a really common criticism is that many of the actors are actually too old to be playing their parts um, yes. because they don't read as 20 somethings. Uh, no, no. Some of them were pushing 40 at, yeah. the, at the time uh, trying to play uh, in their early to mid 20s. Um, not not their best move. Probably. No. 
and and overall, I feel like the the film actually cuts out some of the more meaningful moments from the show um, and leaves leaves the show or leaves the movie as a result feeling kind of barren. Uh, while also simultaneously feeling like it's also trying to be bigger than it is like the opening number, right? Uh, just as an example, real quick, the opening number, uh, feels very personal to our main cast when they sing it on stage. But when it's sung in the opening sequence of the film, the whole neighborhood is lighting things on fire and throwing them from the windows. <laughs> and it, so it feels like this epic protest. Uh, but really, this is happening to Mark and Roger. Um, like they're being evicted tonight because the deal that they had with Benny is now kaput. Uh, so it's not. Really, that's not what's happening here, right? They don't have neighborhood solidarity with their issue. Uh, and so that's just like one of those weird creative choices that makes you go, oh, yeah, it's like a spectacle for the movie. It doesn't jive with what the book and what the music say and what we see on the stage. So, yeah, yeah it's it's not as strong as the stage performance, in my opinion. Actually, Alice, I think this is a great opportunity to talk about something uh, that we did touch on earlier. But in my opinion, the definitive way to watch Rent from home at the moment is the 2008 uh, final Broadway cast recording. Yes, I I agree that it is uh, it is a rather it is an exceptional performance. I have some some um, I have a little bit of beef with uh, some of the casting choices in the um, uh in that version in the 2008 version but uh it is really well filmed and it's it's well shot and it's very intimate and it and it feels good to watch it as though you were with an audience because that energy is uh is really important to the show it is something that misses that is really missing from the film is at the end of a of a big song and dance number there's just silence. They, 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 they don't do a great job in the movie of transitioning from scene to scene and, and kind of, they kind of linger at the end of songs as if there should be an applause break, but there isn't one because there's no audience. You need that in rent. You need that energy of, of people watching with you. And so that the 2008 um, version starring um, Renee Elise Goldsberry as Mimi and uh, Eden Espinoza as Maureen, and of course Tracy Toms as Joanne, um, who are who are they are they are excellent performers. Um, uh, buddy, you might know uh, Renee Elise Gold Goldsberry. Did you recognize her? She uh, was the original Angelica Schuyler in Hamilton. Uh, I did not recognize her right away, but Kate Prince, when I was watching it, uh, turned to the screen and was like, "Hey, wait a minute!" <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that's that's really cool to see that Rent was a springboard. And maybe even continues to be a springboard through off-Broadway performances for so many talented performers. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it was a springboard for um, for the extremely talented original Broadway cast, um, most of whom were complete unknowns. Um, very few of them. A couple of them had, uh, you know, a handful of other off-Broadway credits. Um, Anthony Rapp was a little bit of a child star, um, but was definitely unknown by the time he um by the time he did rent um and uh it launched the careers of uh 
of Anthony Rapp and Adam Pascal, but uh, really, uh, you know, most famously, um, Adina Menzel, who is now a household name, although sometimes by the name of Adele Dazim. <laughs> Adele Dazim, uh, famous screen and stage belter. Uh <laughs> Uh, but I guess what we're trying to say is that though Rent did have a positive critical reception on the stage and massive financial success, its translation into film was, I don't know, rocky at best. Yeah, it was uh, definitely rocky at best. And I think the film actually uh, highlighted a lot of pretty significant flaws in the story um, and chose to focus its attentions in the in the wrong ways. Um, and we'll have an entire episode dedicated to comparing the show and the film and talking about the movie. Um, but a lot of the problems with the film, I think stem from, um, problems with the, the show in general. And, um, and those, um, those problems are, are common complaints about the show kind of as a whole. Yeah, there are foundational issues with Rent, uh, and some of which are maybe a little bit more overblown than others, but many of which are very legitimate. Uh, and we'd like to just start by getting some of them addressed on this show and a little bit out of the way, even though we'll definitely be returning to many of them. Yeah, we de- we have plans to return to, to all of these um, all of these topics later, and we'll have uh, quite a lot to say about all of the characters. And and um, but we wanted to start with uh, some common complaints about about rent and um, and yeah yeah what what you said get it get them out of the way now uh, so that when we return to them later we're already familiar with some of the uh, some of the problems with the show. Yeah. Well, just so that we're all on the same page when it comes to recognizing that these are indeed issues. Yes, because like we said, this is a lovingly critical uh, response to Rent. We uh, we we love it. We're big fans. Um, but yeah, we're going to be a little critical about some of some of the parts. So let's start with a um, a pretty big one. This is a common complaint that I've heard from fans and critics alike um, about the show and the film. Um, a lot of people think that this movie, this story, um, romanticizes the um, the AIDS crisis. Yeah, or even just romanticizes the experiences of those who have AIDS. Right. Um, and I can see where this criticism is coming from, because AIDS in this film is portrayed as something that these young, reckless artists have, that because of their lifestyle of experiencing life to the fullest, they got AIDS. And also their, especially Angel's untimely demise due to AIDS, is presented so beautifully Right. That it it does beg the question like, oh, was it like good then? Which obviously not. Right. Right. Like, no, this play isn't saying AIDS is good. And and I feel like that interpretation does leave a lot of text on the table, not just subtext. <laughs> right. 
Right. There's a lot going on in this in this play about AIDS. The AIDS crisis is at the at the center of the storytelling. Um, I think one of the legitimate criticism that probably maybe the best legitimate criticism about how this show handles the AIDS crisis is that it talks about the characters having AIDS, but it does very, very little to talk about what the world was experiencing at the time. They don't talk about the actual protests. They don't talk about the Reagan administration. They don't talk about the FDA. They don't talk about the actual, like, the real life things that were happening around them politically and socially that um, that was a like a huge culture shift in real life. This was a, a massive... Um, a, a massive like movement of people who are protesting for LGBT rights and for um, you know, the against the government that wasn't taking care of them. And so that, that struggle and that like on like a glo- national or global scale was really, really pushed to the background of this, of this show. Um, I have some, I have some thoughts about that criticism, but I think that, that for the most part, it is fair. Yeah, I, I, I would say that these characters are going through deeply personal conflicts and that the wider conflict that perhaps they may have been going through is less of a concern yeah. for the for the show. Sure. Right? If we wanted a great big show about, you know, the Reagans and um and about like the AIDS crisis and how it affected lots of people, uh, you know, we could we have the normal heart and we have angels in America and we have like, other shows that, that do that. Uh, Rent doesn't need to be that show. Um, but I think it, um, it would serve the show to better to have more, a little more of it. Yeah. And I think, okay. So one, one criticism I might have of this show when it comes to how it portrays having AIDS is that the character's, unless they are actively dying seem to be doing mostly okay except they have to take some drugs which again is another bigger question but there's not a lot of on-screen time for characters to talk about like symptoms and struggling with that outside of like a couple of lines right just a couple of little things like during um during life support and stuff like that right? right Where they talk about T cells being low, but like they're the characters are alive and joyful. And honestly, I I see that as a criticism that some might have, but also I feel like that is another part of the show, part of what makes the show special, is that these characters have AIDS and they're alive and joyful. And and those two things can absolutely coexist. And that is a bold statement in 1996. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's it's a bold statement, especially when it's when it's first being written before it goes, you know, into workshopping and stuff like that in '94. But it's still bold in '96. Um, yeah. And I feel like that's part of what makes the show special. Um, so, is AIDS being romanticized here? No, not really. But maybe the characters experiences might be a little yeah and and i feel like what's what's definitely being overlooked is the 
social and political struggle surrounding the AIDS crisis, where a lot of that stuff just kind of gets abstracted into there is a tense city. And that's like it, right? Well, yeah, that's and, that's, and like. that's speaking not about the AIDS crisis, but about the problem with homelessness in, in New York and poverty. For, for sure. And and what I'm saying is that uh, all of all of the larger social political conflicts are oh, abstracted are, into sure, that. Sure, that makes sense. And, and, yeah. and it all just gets placed on there's a tent city. Times are tough. <laughs> uh, but it's not saying anything specific. And that does feel narrow yeah and and so uh, ironically by overgeneralizing it narrows its its perspective <laughs> um but there's there are other very valid and sometimes not so valid concerns right about about rent specifically sure um if we're gonna talk about uh criticisms of rent and uh discourse surrounding rent uh we have to talk about benny just like real quick. Real quick. Let's talk about Benny. Real quick. We have to get Benny out of the way uh, because we know it's going to come up um, and we're going to spend more time talking about Benny later uh, when Benny gets some a couple of good songs. Um, but um, the current discourse surrounding Rent, the current like hot take about the musical is that Benny is right um, and never did anything wrong. Uh, <laughs> Benny never, no, you know, Ben, Benny did nothing wrong is like the hot take. It, ever, people seem to be like, Rent is this. I, I've seen this tweet a hundred times. Rent is not a great musical um, because these jerks are stiffing Benny on the rent and Benny is right and, um, and only wants to make a living and, you know, nothing he did is wrong. Uh, therefore, he's the hero of the show. Yeah. Um, to that criticism, I say you, you didn't, you didn't want, you didn't listen to the lyrics of the show. Like you weren't paying attention. <laughs> uh, Benny's not right, and Benny Benny does do things that are objectively wrong. Yes. Uh, in fact, uh, because we'll get a little bit into this. Uh, in in a couple of minutes, but because rents and evictions are on top of mind, I've been hearing a lot of uh, stories around the nation about people struggling with not being able to pay the rent. And what Benny does is illegal. Like, yes. he just chains up the door to a building that people are living in. That's not that's not how eviction works. No, it's not. Um, and even if it was just Mark and Roger who were living in a probably illegal apartment, like condemned space that they're not supposed to be living in. Um, uh, there, I mean, they're squatters. Joanne says it. Technically, you're squatters. There's hope. Like, they have squatters', they have squatters rights. rights. They have, they have it's rights. It's a thing that exists. And, so, and Benny doesn't just kick out Mark and Roger. He, he padlocks the entire building and leaving... People like Mimi, who is a 19-year-old heroin-addicted sex worker, um, out in the cold in the middle of December. It's a on on Christmas, on Christmas Eve. Eve. It's a terrible thing to do to somebody. He is absolutely the Ebenezer Scrooge of this story. However, there are things about Benny that are more complicated than Benny is pure evil. And and I feel like 
what what the Benny did nothing wrong camp says is sometimes based in these things that we see Benny say and do that are more complicated than his threat of eviction. Sure. And we'll cover this when we get to the song uh, You'll See Boys. Um, right. But he has he has ideas and dreams and and hopes and desires. He's not just, you know, he's not a villain, a true straight up and down villain. We know what he wants and we know why he wants it and what he's willing to do to get it. And those things are are admirable um, and and achievable. Um, but he's he's kicking. He made a deal with his friends, <laughs> made a deal with his friends to not charge them rent to live in like a. Uh, illegal condemned space um and then is saying no you owe me one year's rent all at once right now um and uh and he also, knows they're not good for it and also you have to leave right um he went back he went back on his end of the deal and and that's not cool that's not friendship that's also one of the very first things that he says in the entire uh in the entire show is uh hey you Move over, get your ass off my Range Rover. Um, that's douchey. <laughs> yeah, he's okay. So, so Benny is corrupted by his position, uh, and that that makes him feel like he can justify the bad actions he takes. Yeah, but at the end of the day, Benny is doing bad things to people he knows and says he cares about. Yeah, and I feel like like. We we can say, oh, but it's Benny's property and he has a legal right to blah, blah, blah. But he's also doing bad things to people that he doesn't know yeah. and doesn't care about. And both of those things together means that he just does bad things to people. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's not... I, I feel like... Okay, so we'll get more into Benny later. But Benny is so complicated that... There are things that he does that are redeeming, for sure. Yeah. But they are not... The things that he does that are redeeming are not related to anything with the rent. Um, <laughs> nor nor the protests. Like, no. he is 100% in the wrong in all of that. I agree. I agree. And Act 2, Benny tries to, you know, come back and he does very sweet things like paying for Mimi's rehab and paying for Angel's funeral. Um, and those are those are really great. And he's learning how to use the money that he has to help the people he cares about, which is very nice. And then, you know, they probably, you know, didn't they weren't all very good friends. He probably didn't have to do that. Um, but, you know, he learns lessons and Benny's a great character, but he's not he's not right. And he's not the hero of this show. Right. Uh, but another criticism that gets leveled at Rent is that all of the characters are actually very selfish and yes. self-absorbed. Yes. Uh, and that question, I think, is... I think you and I might have more to say about that than we even do about Benny. Uh, because I definitely think there are characters that are selfish and self-absorbed. I also don't think that the play absolves them of that crime. No. No, I I agree. This is yeah, the idea that the characters are selfish, including Benny, uh, but all of the characters really have moments of of selfishness. Um, that do, that does not really get addressed or absolved, and 
however, I want to level the idea that the characters um, don't need to be good people all the time to be interesting, relatable, or even like good, like good. You like don't good have to people. be good all the time to be good. Yeah. Right. Um, and and the show doesn't need to um, have perfect characters. Um, like, like characters doing bad things is not the show uh, saying, ah, oh, but those bad things are commendable and, and totally okay. I support everything that these people did just because I featured it in the show. You know, like, the, the characters are bad people, but that, that's because they're people. Like, sometimes they do mean things to each other and sometimes they say nasty things to each other and cheat on each other and, and, um... I don't know. Just, just generally, Angel kills a dog at one point. Like <laughs> we don't forgive. We don't f- anybody who kills a dog in except fiction, except for Angel. Apparently, uh, for some reason, we we brush it off, including Benny. Yeah, whose dog it was? <laughs> whose dog it was? So what? Uh, depiction is not an endorsement. Yes. In 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 any media, um, you cannot assume that depiction is an endorsement sometimes it is um i feel like in rent especially depiction is not an endorsement right uh there is a criticism of the bohemian lifestyle that these characters are pretending at because let's be honest they're not really living la vie bohème (laughs) <laughs> I said with as much H as I could. But I, love <laughs> um, I love it. They're not really living it. They're pretending at it. And the play knows it. And Larson seems to know it. Yes. Uh, but and, the characters and to the extent, don't learn that. They don't no, learn not, the not within the show. And to the extent that Mark is Larson, you know, there is self-criticism of that character built right into the show. Yeah. It's all right there. And I feel like for every selfish move that these characters make, there is an in-universe human justification that varies in validity for sure, but that is at least there. Uh, and that makes it a stronger play, in my opinion. Yeah. I Yeah, I, I think this, um, they're fair criticisms, but it's not fair... Uh, it's fair criticisms of the character, but it's not fair criticism of uh, the the work and its merit. Um, you got to let the bad guys be bad guys sometimes. <laughs> and you got to let the good guys sometimes not be good. Yeah. I, I feel like that just gives the show some crunch and some depth. Actually, I feel like some of what we lose in the movie takes some of that away. I agree um, completely, but we'll definitely get to that. Oh, yeah. Um. Uh, a couple more common complaints, things that we want to make sure we address before we really get started. Um, we understand that um, that Rent does have uh, does experience some stereotypically negative portrayal of the lesbian and bisexual characters. Um, Joanne has to be the butt of a joke of a lot of jokes. Um, yeah, she spends most of the scenes that she's in being. Uh, yeah, being dunked on, I would say. Yeah. Uh, in, in ways that are kind of unfair to her until about act two. But even then, yeah, she, uh, she yeah. is not she's not portrayed as somebody that I feel 
she deserves to be portrayed at, which is a, 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 a woman with such an amazing head on her shoulders who is hanging out with people that she gen genuinely kind of admires from like an outsider's perspective um, and who is deeply madly in love with somebody she knows is terrible for her. Yes. Which is such a real thing, right? <laughs> um, um, yeah, absolutely. Joanne, Joanne gets treated pretty poorly, uh, which is unfortunate um, because she is a, um, a strong, beautiful black woman who's a lesbian and probably shouldn't be treated like the butt of a bunch of jokes about how she's also like a real life lawyer and who, she's a real life lawyer who makes who good is money. not who is not a theater person and why is she being made to why is she being so put upon at this point to put on this show yes and to be you know shoved into being um you know the roadie too putting the putting all of the speakers away and packing up and but she is sometimes also portrayed as or characterized by people as being kind of controlling and kind of um you know kind of mean um which is not a nice not a not a nice thing to say about her because i don't i don't think she is those things i don't think that the sh the show probably doesn't treat joanne as well as it should and the show the show doesn't treat Maureen as well as uh, as it should, although she's not a good person. Uh, of the people, she's not probably not the, the best one. <laughs> um, but Maureen is like a walking, talking stereotype of the slutty bisexual. The, it's a stereotype of bisexual women that is really harmful and, and it's hard to watch. Um, where she... Oh, she's bi oh, she's bisexual, although they never call her bisexual. But she dates men and women. She likes men and women. Therefore, she can't settle on one and she cheats all the time and she's always flirting with people and blah blah blah. Right. It's like turned on by everybody and everybody turns her on, so or no, and everybody's turned on by her. <laughs> so she uses that to justify what is actually just bad behavior. Yeah. Like she she is actually just kind of awful to the people in her life. Absolutely. When, but she's the but worst the, one and just happens to be the only character that is bisexual. It's frustrating. Right. It's really I frustrating. Feel like, <laughs> I feel like one thing that the text of the show seems to do is make it seem like her bad behavior is because of her bisexuality. Yeah. Which is not cool. Extremely uh, uncool. I would say that Rent, in general, has a complicated 1994 to 1996 relationship with gender and sexuality yes uh and that in general a lot of the stuff that it was viewed as progressive for depicting and for discussing have now soured a lot yes um and that's a shame because you know hindsight is 2020 and <laughs> what we now see even as progressive and uh, groundbreaking may be seen as ham-fisted and uh, backwards in the future yeah. but I would like to think that at some point we are kind of approaching a more diverse accepting world that doesn't have that hindsight problem <laughs> a little we'll at see. a time we'll, we'll see. see a little bit at a time but you know Rent for for all of its flaws 
does seem to be trying, though. Yes. Seems to be trying because I think that um, that the people involved, Jonathan Larson, but also the, the actors and the creative team, were part of the of the communities that they are writing about. Um, Jonathan Larson himself was a straight man, as far as we know. Um, but uh, he, he was deeply entrenched in the LGBT community. Um, he, the actors, a lot of them are uh, LGBT. Uh, a lot of the creative team was. Jonathan Larson was living on the Lower East Side in a crappy little apartment Jonathan Larson was dumped by a woman who went on to date a woman. So that is autobiographical. That's in that's that is text. Um, and <laughs> that's that, text that could, of the biography and of the show that could. I, and I, I read about that in Anthony Rapp's uh, autobiography. So um, I'm assuming that that is uh, true. Um, John, uh, Anthony Rapp had a very, uh, very close relationship with Larson. Um, and so. So we are seeing, as as we said before, like a time capsule of 1996, and so it, it it's not as uh, as progressive as we'd like it to be, but um, uh, but at the, you know at the time it was as respectful and as honest as these people could be, um, and was a, a really really influential and treasured part of a lot of different communities in New York, especially up uh, especially. Uh, LGBT people of color um, and the communities that developed in New York around um, traditions for people of color, like, like ballroom and, and, and drag and, um, and LGBT space spaces and protests and stuff like that. It's like really, really important. Um, but, you know, things don't age well sometimes. And uh, sometimes you end up with characters like Maureen <laughs> and uh, that's it's unfortunate, but it happens. And so we're addressing it now before we uh, before we continue. I know we're going to talk more about Maureen. I have a oh, lot absolutely. of a lot of things to say. Um, but, you know, to talk about Larson being a member of the community in the East Village in the late 1980s and how semi-autobiographical semi wow that's a big word <laughs> this were this uh work tends to be do you think maybe there's a little bit of glamorizing of that community happening in the show because it seems like there is an undercurrent of being young being poor being a little bit of an asshole <laughs> uh and living a little dangerously being intrinsically attached to being a better artist um and that does feel unaddressed within the show uh like that this makes the art better somehow yeah that that roger is gonna write one last song because it's his blaze of glory that mark is finally gonna make a film that matters and changes the world because he's in this world uh, and then out of it sprang Rent, right? Which does seem to be an important work uh, that seemed to kind of be a blaze of glory, part of that mythologizing, right? Yeah. Uh, and so is that happening here? Is that a valid criticism? I would say maybe. Yeah, I'd say um, that especially, 
especially approaching it maybe as as we get older. Uh, I, it's a criticism of Rent that I've heard before where people say, you know, you watch Rent as a teenager. If you love it's if you love Rent as a teenager, you know, you you have a heart. <laughs> um, but if you love Rent as an adult, you don't have a a brain. <laughs> I've heard that. I've heard that about um, liberalism and conservatism. Yes, I've heard it too. And so, so there, there's a conversation to be had about whether you know how much of this is true. Um, but the the criticism that I have heard about Rent is that when you watch it when you're older, or you experience it when you're older, and you realize that that glamorization of being young and poor and mean, um, and and struggling for your art and and doing what you can to write your magnum opus and and to possibly die for your for your art or in pursuit of your art um uh is some is a young man's game <laughs> that's that's something that young people think about and um and that the you know the the criticism is is that when you're older you look at it and go well that's all dumb <laughs> Um, and I These don't. These young people should have been investing in their futures. <laughs> um, is that four hundred one k, sir? <laughs> I fight all the time. I constantly fight um, impulses to think like that. Um, it's the same impulses that that pop up in your brain when you're like, ah, music these days, or uh, <laughs> kids these days don't know. You know, they don't know what the good old days of the internet were. They're all about their TikToks now. <laughs> you know, um, I, I fight that impulse a lot. Uh, the impulse to think things are dumb just because like kids are into it. Um, and I think that that's something it's a, a, a it's a, a fair, but um, like closed minded uh, criticism of, of rent and, or specifically about the part where they ask, you know, is this, is this lifestyle being, glamorized is it being romanticized is it uh the the questions that they're asking like is this is by watching it by seeing these characters you know struggle and 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 live and fall in love is it is it saying is it saying that this is that this is glory that this is this is like what you should aspire toward or is it just saying you know, this is how these people lived. the The question maybe would be, it, I think the the question is better asked. Um, does rent seem to con- does it seem to support the idea that living living for your art and suffering for your art is the only way to be an artist? Um. Because I don't think they make the East Village seem... I mean, they, they seem like like cool, interesting people, but their lives seem absolutely miserable with no heat and no place to live. And, you know, they're all dying of AIDS and they're struggling with addiction and stuff. I don't think that it's necessarily glamorizing that part of the lifestyle. But I think that it would be fair to ask the question, um, are... is is rent suggesting that this is the only way to make real art? Yeah. And, and one big theme of rent that gets, I think 
some unfair criticism and it's kind of linked to the the whole Benny was right school of thinking right is that these kids are raging against some machine that it's silly to rage against or or rather maybe there is no machine and that the machine is their own decisions right yeah uh and so like what are you even mad at is a, is a question that i feel like people might level at rent right yeah what are you so upset about like Mark, go move back in with your parents. Now, actually, they can all go move back in with their parents, but that's a discussion for another time, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but like, you know, get a real job, start paying rent. <laughs> it's not that hard. Everybody does it, right? Uh, when in reality, I feel like rent is raging against a machine that it's very valid to rage against. And I feel like that's actually one of the things that brings us back to rent here on December the 24th of 2020, uh, which is that a lot of the stuff that we saw in rent that we might have said, oh, but that's all in the past. And what were they raging against anyways? It's back. It, it never left. It never it's, really left. It's so much more in our faces here now in this moment than when we were dumb teenagers raging against the machine, we have the awareness of the world as it is. And rent is talking about the stuff that matters to us now. Right. Right. Rent is asking questions. Rent is rent features people who are asking questions and maybe not as effectively as we want them to, but they're asking questions about why is, why is the world the way that it is? Why are these bad things happening? Why do I have to put up with this machine? Um, I don't have a solution, but I want to know why the world is like this. Um, and I think, yeah, there's some criticism that's like that, that levels that. Like, oh, well, if you think the world is so bad, propose a solution. Well, I don't have one because I am in my 20s and I uh, am starving because I want to do something meaningful and worthwhile and it doesn't make me any money. And uh, and I don't have a power against these horrible things that are happening to the people I care about. And, I, and therefore, I am mad and want to rage against a machine. And the, fu the futility of that rage and the the questions that are being asked is something that is still so it's so relevant today never went away as you said never ever went away all of these all the problems that they're raging against still happen every day um but 2020 was a particularly difficult year wasn't it <laughs> it was and it brought back into maybe maybe the public consciousness uh and maybe maybe even our own if we're being a little self-critical, right? Yeah. Uh, the the issues that the communities depicted in Rent were dealing with and have always been dealing with. Things like the threat of police violence, right? Right. The threat uh, of eviction. 
yeah, the threat of eviction as a major concern that nobody can pay the rent. Uh-huh. Uh, how a government handles a highly deadly infectious disease hmm. um, being on top of mind. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's that's something that rent is like absurdly concerned with. Yeah. The rent is is really concerned with it. And and again, maybe isn't asking the question the way that we want it to. But the question is still being asked. We want Rent to be more of a protest piece than it is, which is interesting, right? Because Rent is about a protest, at least in Act 1. Act 1 is about a protest, <laughs> and as we'll, we'll get deep into the idea of protest musicals, of protest shows, like, in general. Um, but um, but Rent itself in, in the text is about people. And the people do ask the question, like, what is the relationship between art and protest, between um, between making making the things you want to make and 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 protesting like with your with your body um, or being able to pay the bills and eat. <laughs> and, you know, that the fact that, that there is a choice you have to make, you know, do I do I do something meaningful and artistic or do I live literally <laughs> yeah. um is a question that the that the show asks um is a question that a lot of people are asking even to this very day <laughs> yeah right now this moment uh and i feel like in 2020 we've also asked ourselves questions about gender and sexuality that we are continuously asking ourselves as a society and that rent was less afraid to ask than many pieces of media at the time yeah Again, not perfect, but it's asking the question and it's it's delivering characters of so many different identities that you that it's it's making the it's making the the personal political and it's turning it into a into a question that is that is worth asking. The rent also talks about um, about privilege. Is a, a big topic that we discuss today. Yeah. Um, uh, the idea of, of privilege and the use or misuse thereof, which yeah, characters question... are ignoring or, you know, ignoring and misusing their privilege, which characters recognize they have it and use it properly. Yeah. The question of how to harness privilege or even if that's a, an OK thing to do is actually in rent. It's yeah. right there. It's a pretty um, big part of it. Yeah, and and to say that Rent is about a bunch of privileged kids whining that their art isn't good enough and living poor by choice uh, seems to neglect that very real part of the show. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, that's it's a critic. That's a criticism I've heard before. Ah, these kids, you know, they ignore their you know, they're rich parents just because they want to pretend, you know, to be good at art. And, but that's, it's a really like, it's a really, it's a really dismissive way to think about, to think about the show and to think about the problems that these people are experiencing. Um, and when you want, if you want to bring the idea of privilege into it, you can explore these characters motives deeper. Um, and and you should 
it's something that we hope that we'd like to do in the show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, uh, I would say that one thing that Rent is tackling is the idea of addiction and chemical substance abuse and what that does to a person and yep. how it limits their options and limits their lives in in so many ways. Yeah, uh, it's really at the forefront of a lot of people's minds um, because we're currently dealing with the opioid crisis. Yeah, not to mention any number of substances that people use on a daily basis just to kind of find a way to get through. Right. It's it's I feel like rent is is critical of drug use. Yes, but doesn't condemn the users of drugs as morally wrong yeah uh outright right like that that there is a struggle there there is a a respect for the struggle that it comes that comes with using drugs yeah and trying not to they actually talk uh, about withdrawal which is not something that a lot of media about drug use like like brings up the idea that being sick because you're trying to quit is like that's so hard for people and and the show brings it up all of those things from police violence down all of those topics we just brought up very briefly all things that will be discussed on the show in depth um as it relates to uh to rent and how the topics were relevant in 96 and are still relevant even more relevant now than you know we can we could have made the show a couple of years ago and those things wouldn't have felt as important to talk about, but they're suddenly it's, it's 2020. We're in the middle of a massive global pandemic. Um, and we spent the summer talking about police violence and racial justice. And we've spent, you know, the last couple of years talking about LGBT rights and uh, gender identity and you know, these these things are so, so important to us now, more important now than they've been probably since 1996, as they were crazy important in the early 90s. Um, and they, you know, the, the world has changed so much, but some things remain the same, that these are, are questions and answers that we seek still to this day. Yeah. And I, I think the question that we asked it, at the beginning is like, how has rent aged and how has rent become more or less relevant i feel like that's at the center of it is that for all of its flaws for all of the ways that it feels like everything that could be said about rent was said for all of its feeling unfinished and for all of its overwrought overdramatic overplayed qualities Rent is, for some, for some impossible reason, at, at the center of everything right now, and that's what it feels like. That that's what it feels like from here, in Cyberland, where we only drink Diet Coke, <laughs> and where everything real has been torn down, and all we have left are our cyber spaces. And our digital art studios. Yeah. I I do understand 
the perspective of the characters in Rent right now in a way that I did not five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Uh, and I don't feel, even though I have grown to an age that is beyond any of the characters are supposedly because <laughs> we, we did disagree a little bit about how old each of these characters are but sure. i believed I, I believe that we are older than most of the protagonists uh despite that fact i feel what they feel and i i feel that unsure questioning and that unsure rage against the machine uh and that's why the show is called Greetings from Cyberland, because it feels like a lot of what was being talked about in Rent as like a warning has come to pass. Yeah. Uh, and that's grim. It's also true to our experience. Yeah. And I thought up a way to end our episodes. Oh, good. Um, so if you'll allow me. Uh, Alice, I guess there's only one thing left to do. And what's that? Jump over the moon. everybody thank you so much for listening to the first episode of greetings from cyberland a brand new podcast from your favorite podcasters over at those happy podcasts those happy podcasts a uh loving somewhat joking name for a collection of works that alice you and i create uh on the internet um that are mostly podcasts but are sometimes branching out into other things uh, and so this is the latest in a series of works that we are really excited to share with everybody. Yeah, I'm like blown away by how much there is to talk about and how uh, how much I was able to find and the research I was able to do and, and how much fun that we are having already. Uh, and we've only just begun. And so if you've listened this far and you have are joining us for the outro of this show, uh, we wanted to thank you so much for listening. Uh, if you wanted to support the show, the best way to do that is to tweet about the show and tell all your friends about it. Yeah, this show can be found at Cyberland Pod on Twitter. Twitter is where we always are for more discussions about any of our favorite topics. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you want to talk about Rent, the hit musical and film, at Cyberland Pod is the place to go. But Alice, where can they find you specifically? Well, you can find me specifically on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Alice White THP for those happy places. You're at TikTok now? Yeah, I'm on TikTok now. <laughs> we were just criticizing the youth for their use of TikTok. Oh, no, I would never. Are telling me you're I would on TikTok? never <laughs> criticize the youth for their use of TikTok. I love TikTok. <laughs> Uh, and you can find me just on Twitter, I guess, because I'm uh, even older than Alice. Uh, I'm at buddy underscore Duquesne. Duquesne is spelled D-U-Q-U-E-S-N-E. And Alice, we do several other amazing shows that people might be interested in, such as Those Happy Places. The podcast that treats theme parks, rides, and attractions as literature. If you're into theme parks, you're into Disney, you're into things like that, come join us at thosehappyplaces.com. And if you like the idea of that show and you like us and you want to support the show, 
um, maybe a little more than just tweeting at us or leaving us a, a review or telling your friends, you should join us on our Patreon. Yeah, patreon.com slash those happy places. Those happy places was our first show, so that's what the Patreon is named after. <laughs> uh, you can join us there at any number of tiers where you will find all sorts of bonus content we have entire podcast episodes on there we have uh small blog posts we have wacky discussions where we sing at each other <laughs> it is a time and a half and we can't thank people enough for joining us on there and for saying hey i would like to use some hard-earned human money <laughs> to uh say that i support the works of these two individuals so uh to everybody out there on the Patreon. We can't thank you enough. And Alice, some people who join us on Patreon get their names read at the end of every episode that we create, of every show that we create. <laughs> and we have quite a few shows, and so it is really excellent to be able to introduce to you, our Cyberland listeners, to our Patreon subscribers. Uh, we've got Charles G, Oslam C, April L, Ree J, Ian E, Nick H, Joe W, and Kate P. They are our amazing, amazing subscribers that are uh, at the level where they get their name read. Uh, there are so many different levels. We've got merch, we've got stickers, we've got bonus episodes, we've got so, so, so much um that you'll just have to go to patreon.com slash those happy places to find out what they are and to all of our backers again you are all gentle people and scholars we would not be able to make an entire extra show of podcast without your support it is because of you all that we're able to put together the resources necessary to make more shows so if every time we're coming up with something new you're like wow uh, these people know what I like to hear about, <laughs> uh, then the Patreon might be the place for you. But again, if that's not in the cards for you right now, we totally understand. The best thing you can do for us, for our uh, not-quite-podcast network, is to say, hey, these shows exist, and to pass them along to your friends uh, and you know, continue to spread that word. Yes, and, and for all of that, we, we love and appreciate you so much. Uh, hey, Alice, I think I'm going to add some music to this episode. Oh, where would you have found that music? I'm going to add music that I found from Incompetech.com. That's a website run by Kevin McLeod, famed uh, musician and composer of the internet. He makes all of his music uh, available through a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution license, which simply means that we say at the end of the episode, thank you to Kevin and that allows us the rights to use the uh, songs that you hear in the show. Of course, we also list the songs and the licensing information in the show notes. So look out for that. Uh, and we do have theme music. Well, what's our theme music? Our theme music is called Neon Laser Horizon. And that's also by Kevin McLeod. And we chose it because it, I don't know, sounds like Cyberland. Yeah, it, it feels good. Uh, it's a beautiful piece of music. Thank you so much, Kevin. Um, go check out Kevin's amazing music. Yeah. Um, so, Alice, I, I think that brings us to the end of our outro. And I, I got to say, thank you for coming up with the idea for this podcast. And thank you for choosing to drag me kicking and screaming through yet another one of your favorite things. <laughs> 
Uh, I feel incredibly honored, and I feel like we've already said things about Rent that are insightful and interesting, and I can't wait to share it with everybody. I'm so excited to talk to you about all of this. Uh, you always have the coolest insights and, and interesting things to say, um, even about things that you are not especially familiar with. <laughs> and for that, I appreciate you, and I'm so glad you're along for the ride. And to everyone out there, thank you for taking this leap of faith with us.